The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word from a very familiar passage. It's the Sermon on the Mount, the middle of it, Matthew chapter 6. Would you turn there with me? I do know that you've been given your guide um, ten weeks, seven days a week, with a biblical theme on each day, and then that theme repeated of those days for those seven weeks with specific requests that will be sent to you, as well as those that you have. Let's... Uh, Why are we doing this? I hope and how do we do this? I hope this morning may be helpful for us in these few moments together. Look with me in Matthew chapter six and verse five. And when and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they might be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray. Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who, who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts and also and as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And in many, many of the manuscripts, this also is found for thine is the kingdom, and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In other words, your intimacy with the Lord is evidenced by your desired intimacy with others, that you're willing to forgive as freely as you've been forgiven. That's the evidence of your walk with the Lord. Then he moves from there to something else. And when you fast, do not look, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word abides forever. By his grace and his mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. So, Pastor, why have our elders called us to 70 days of fervent prayer? 
I think it's pretty obvious the word fervent is drawn from a theme verse for us that the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It wasn't just 70 days for Elijah. It was three and a half years. And so he was utterly devoted to this matter of prayer. Why are we calling our congregation to prayer and, in addition, inviting you to consider the biblical practice of fasting along with prayer? Why are we doing that? You know, when I was thinking through this and what text I would preach from, uh, the text I was initially drawn to was the book of Esther, where Mordecai prayed and fasted. And then he called, he called upon Esther and said to her, Have you not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And clearly, the fervency of his prayer and his fasting was directly related to the Challenges facing God's covenant people in their captivity of the Medo-Persian Empire. And that perhaps this Jewish woman who now was in the marital relationship with the king who oppressed his people. Perhaps you're there for such a time as this. But that phrase, such a time as this, is actually at the root of this. Such a time as this. Throughout the nation where we serve. Now, not for days, not for hours, not for days, not for weeks, not for months, not not even just for a month, but for months. Cities with extraordinary means and resources lay paralyzed, aflame, rioting, looting. We're in a nation of political division, perhaps as hasn't been seen in greater um, extent than at the founding of the nation, are in the mid-19th century that led to a civil war. We have extraordinary divisions. We have economic tensions. We have racial tensions and divisions. Vestiges of the sins of racism. We're confronted with violence every single day. I woke up this morning to the news of two deputy sheriffs that were ambushed last night and lay on the verge of death in intensive care this morning. We we are overwhelmed, it seems, with a pestilence, a pandemic. And the fear of the pandemic seemingly grips people, and as fear often does, it paralyzes. And in the midst of all of this, such a time, is it not right to call for prayer? That's not all the people of God do, but it is the best thing they can do, the first thing that they should do. Many times I hear people say, well, you know, I I can't do anything for you, but I can at least pray. (laughs) Prayer is never the least you do. Now, it may not be the only thing you do, but it's never the least you do. So why this call to prayer? Can I give you a bigger, even as much as this, such a time as this, and I just don't have time to go through all that I could go through to describe such a time as this. 
Here's what I would say. Even more gripping to my soul. And our need to pray. Perhaps could be summed up in the survey that I just went over two weeks ago. My, my friend Chris Larson from Ligonier sent it to me. Ligonier every other year does a study and the years, this year's study and research and survey is astonishing. What it reveals about the evangelical church's theological ignorance is overwhelming. One third of the I'm not talking about theologically liberal churches. I'm talking about professing evangelical churches. One third their membership says God created Jesus. Almost 45% believe in universal salvation. An equal number do not believe in the doctrine of hell and the reality of it. I do not have time to recite for you all of the findings. It is astonishing. It is startling. But it is not, it in a way is not surprising. Because probably for the last 30 or 40 years under the influence of church growth principles, Churches have been much more concerned to be accepted by the culture and have so modified their mission and their message that now they do not produce people who think counter to the culture, but like the culture. And that is what overwhelms our heart. You see, it really does not surprise me when the world acts like the world with violence, confusion and hatred. But when I see it, the other thing I know, the reason the world is going into its death spiral is because the church is not doing its work of salt and light. The salt is not salty and the light is not shiny. That's the reason. It doesn't amaze us that total depravity inevitably moves to absolute depravity. But what is to restrain it? is the redeeming grace message of the gospel in word and deed from God's people into society and the common grace blessing of how God's people affect society with their decorum, their civility, and the way that they engage society with the message of life and hope instead of that of death and destruction. The reason that we're seeing what we're seeing is not because the world is doing anything different than what it would do, but because the church has not been doing what it ought to do. And we desperately need revival. Because we need a spiritual awakening. We need a gospel awakening in this nation and from this nation to all the nations of the world. And thank God for what's happening in many of the nations of the world. But what is needed in this nation is a gospel awakening. But gospel awakening to the unbelieving world comes through the instrumentality of the church in its vitality. But now the church in this nation is spiritually impotent and biblically illiterate. And all you got to do is give a simple ten-question test, and it becomes evident. And then watch our lives. How different are we Monday through Saturday? 
And what are we hearing on the Lord's Day from pulpits? The imbecility of the prosperity gospel that Jesus died on the cross to make you rich. The forlorn hope of a therapy gospel that it's all about your self-esteem. Or the biblical 100, 100%, 100% true 16 ounces to the pound gospel that Jesus saves sinners. And has the church lost its mission? And when it loses its mission, it loses its message? We need a gospel awakening. But to get the gospel awakening from heaven, then from heaven requires the power, the presence, and the precision of God's word to be at work in Christ's church. Revival in his church. And God's means is not a program. God's means is the desperate, unfettered, undeterred, insatiable, incessant calling upon the throne of grace and mercy by his people. And then the heavens are rended and God comes down. If you just want a little bit of religion to get you through the night... And this ain't it. But if you desire and know, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Then I thank God for our elders calling us to fervent prayer. Because what we are in is a spiritual war. Some call it a culture war. I don't. I have, but I don't. I haven't for a long time. The culture just provides the battlefields. And the real battlefield is for the hearts and souls of men. We're in a spiritual war. This is, these are heart issues. These are matters of the heart. And we either need God's common grace to restrain the unbelieving heart or God's redeeming grace to change the heart. And that's the message and mission that's been given to us. We're the ones that are supposed to step forward with that, with the power of the Spirit of God. We're in a spiritual warfare. But spiritual warfare, while there is an overlap in the metaphor with physical warfares and the warfares that you've probably studied, and and I have, that's my life, was a historian. But they're not the same. In a physical war, go check the newspapers and the magazines. You know what people do in a war? They demonize the enemy. We don't. We love them. And we pray for them. We'll demonize every thought raised in opposition to Christ, but not the thinker. We'll give an account of the hope that's within us. But we will pursue the hearts and souls of those who would be against us. Because they're really against him who gave himself for them while they were yet enemies. Just as he did for us. And we don't fight with the weapons of death. No, no. The book of Corinthians is clear. We have the weapons of the Spirit divinely designed. For life, 
to rescue men from death unto life. The divinely designed weapons of the Spirit that take captive every thought unto the obedience in life of Christ. And we put on not the armor of Saul, we put on the armor of God. An armor that is fashioned by the hand of God. And when you look at the divinely designed weapons, and when you look at the armor of God, there are two instruments that stand out premier and paramount of all of the armor and the weapons. And that is prayer and the word. The sword of the Lord is his word. And the prayers of his people were an army that marches on its knees. Those are the two that stand premier in the word of God. It is not my purpose today to talk about the ministry of the word, that weapon. I've done it many times. I'll continue to do it. I'm going to make one reference to it today, but that's all. But I do want to deal with this matter of prayer. Seventy days. Now, some people have said, Pastor, why 70 days? I mean, how about seven? Now, Pastor, you know, the other churches, they do 40 days. Well, we're bigger sinners. We need 70. Have you all ever heard of 70 times seven? I mean, that's where we are. Now, let me be more pointed. You got your 10 weeks, seven days a week. 70 days, and each one of those days has a biblical theme, and then we're going to try to give a particular, that's not all you can pray about that day, but can get you started underneath that theme for that day, as it comes back day after day. But here's my biggest deal. I am hoping at the end of 70 days you don't quit. That what you have embraced becomes a way of life. Now, Pastor, aren't aren't there going to be some big prayer gatherings in Washington? Yes, and we'll let you know about those, and I'm not opposed to those. Praise the Lord for them. There's one in particular I I want to tell you about. But here's my problem. Here's where most of us are. Maybe you're not there, and and I'm just talking about my own weakness. But here's where most of us are. Yeah, I'm going to zoom in to that day of prayer in Washington, or I might even go there for that day of prayer. I'll sing two hymns. Somebody up there will pray. I'll go home, and boy, we've committed to prayer, haven't we? Well, I'm not opposed to that. I do believe there are times for such events, but I believe they're built on the closet of prayer. They don't take the place of the closet of prayer. That we begin with our personal prayer time, then our marital prayer time with our spouse. I love seven o'clock every morning with Cindy to pray. And then you have your personal time and then your marital time. And then perhaps in the evening, your family time, and you're walking your family through that guide and asking God, build it in our personal life, our marital life, our family life, and then into my small group, and then perhaps whatever ministry I'm involved in, we'll do something. And then the congregational communities, they'll engage in it. And then corporately we'll have time. We do those. Nehemiah Day is a day of, of corporate prayer. Yes, we, we will do those things and have done those things. Well, Pastor, 
Why are we going to November the 22nd? Well, let me tell you, because that's the Sunday before Thanksgiving. What a time to maybe have communion and be able to end with Thanksgiving and then anticipate the lifestyle of praying into the future. But can I give you another big reason? It's not November the 4th. This isn't about just an election. As important as the election is and as important as this as the battles that are taking place politically and economically and socially and demographically and all of those things. This is even more than that. That's why I don't want to. But that's why I think it's got to be something that's bigger, that's into our life, that's built into our life in which we call upon the Lord, not just for the time as this, but that God would bring a time for his glory. So when I was thinking about prayer and fasting, I said, you know, if God designed prayer, why don't I go to what God says about prayer? And right in the Sermon on the Mount, is this the Lord's Prayer? I know some of you out there, you know, Pastor, that's not really the Lord's Prayer. That's the disciples' prayer. He got that to teach disciples how to pray. Well, I would just say to you, who is the one that put this prayer together for disciples to learn the prayer? The Lord. So I have no problem calling it the Lord's Prayer. Since he gave it to us. But I recognize with you that he's given it to us to teach us how to pray. In fact, we're told in the Bible, this prayer is given two times in the Bible. I think Jesus actually did it more than two times during his three years of ministry. But I know he did it at two different times. One in this sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. There are six sermons of Jesus that are recorded in your Bible. Five of them are in the Gospel of Matthew and one in the Gospel of John. And in the first one, the premier one, what we call the Constitution. Constitution of the kingdom of God, the Sermon on the Mount, right in the middle of it, he dealt with prayer, and then right after that, he dealt with fasting. But that prayer that he gives in the Sermon on the Mount, he also gave another time. An unnamed disciple came up to him and said, Jesus, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way. He not only gave it in a sermon, he gave it in a discipleship endeavor. And as he gives it, he tells us, pray this way. What is this way? I am glad you asked. I've got seven things to tell you very quickly. I'm just going to give them to you. Seven things. Now, this is a text that deserves 10 to 20 sermons. I'm not going to give you 10 to 20 sermons. And I'm not going to try to get 10 to 20 sermons into the next 15 minutes. But I will give you seven things that I'd like for you to think through in the coming 70 days from the Lord's Prayer. Here's the first one. The very first one in prayer is it is focused and directed. Where is prayer focused? To the triune God, our Father. Our Christianity needs to be demonstrably and functionally Trinitarian. The Father authored you, the Son accomplished you, the Spirit applies. God created you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has saved you, the Father authored your salvation, the Son accomplished it, and the Spirit applied it. That this Trinitarian, worship is Trinitarian. Whenever you're into an, whenever you're into a worship service that is committed to biblical, acceptable worship to God, it ought to be demonstrably, uh, it ought to be demonstrably Trinitarian. Here's what Jesus says. The Father seeks true worshipers who will worship Him in 
spirit and truth. In other words, we worship the Father through the Son and in the Spirit. Now, can you worship Jesus? Yes. Do we worship the Holy Spirit? Yes. But the weave of worship is Trinitarian. The Spirit of God moves us to Christ and then through Christ to the praise of the Father. In other words, our worship is the reverse of our salvation. The Father sent the Son who sent the Spirit. Now, the Spirit sends us to the Son and back to the praise of the Father. Same thing's true in prayer. We pray to the Father through the Son in the name of Christ as you were confessing and then by the power of the Holy Spirit who leads us. And we pray focused and direct and directed to God. Now listen to me. Not to prayer. But to God. Let me put it this way. Can I get it? I'm going to get a gasp. Okay. I always like to get a gasp every once in a while. As long as it doesn't get me fired. But just a gasp is pretty good. Harry. I'll do it through a question. Harry. Do you believe in prayer? Harry's answer. No. I believe in praying. Because I believe in God. It is not the prayer I put my trust. I can give you prayer after prayer that is condemned in the Bible. My, it is not simply trusting in prayer. I pray because I believe in God. Who designed prayer. With his word, he speaks to me. Then he designed prayer. For me to speak to him. In the name of Jesus. Led by the spirit. Believingly. But I'm not believing in prayer. I'm believing in him. Yes. I don't have the bumper sticker. Prayer changes things. I would like to have a bumper sticker. God changes things. Through praying people. You have not. Because you ask not. I believe. In praying. But I believe in praying because I believe in God. I um, Maybe I'll try to illustrate it this way. The last four vacations for me have been a temptation that I haven't had for about 40 years. And that temptation is um, to take my shirt off when I go to the pool uh, with some amount of pride. Because I now have, uh, when I go to the pool on vacation, I now ha- have Half of a six-pack. I do. I have a half of one. Because four years ago, I had heart surgery. And I now have this wonderful scar that runs down the front. And, man, the thing tans up great. It really does. And I got it. Now, there are some other pieces of the six-pack that are missing. But I got that one right down the middle. Why? Because I had heart surgery. And I thank the Lord it was successful as far as I know. It was successful. I got a scar and my heart is working and everything is working on target. When I listen, when it came time to get that heart surgery, I did not go looking for a scalpel. I went looking for the doctor. And when it was over, I didn't go thank the scalpel. I thanked the doctor. Prayer is the divine instrument. I thank God for it. But I go looking for God. That's what prayer allows me to do.
I need you. And I can call upon you because Jesus with his blood has made the way for me. I got to do the, I got to do the rest of them quicker. So here you go. Here's the next one. Prayer is, we're taught in the text, is reflexive and learned. Prayer is reflexive and learned. In other words, everybody prays. I've been with atheists, and they pray until they catch themselves. In fact, I can help them pray. Put your hand out. Let me hit your hand with a hammer, and watch what you, they'll, they'll give a prayer. The, the moment I hit their finger with the hammer, I promise you a prayer is coming. It's not a good prayer. It's not going to be an answered prayer. But it will be a prayer. People pray. The people were, you were made to pray. People pray. I hear it all the time. I heard a, a golfer the other day win a tournament, and this is what he said. I just want to thank my lucky stars. Boy, that's a great prayer. But that's a prayer. That's what he's giving. He's a prayer. We are made to pray. Notice the text doesn't say, if you pray, the prayer text says when you pray but the but the bible also tells us you have not because you ask not and then when you do ask when you ask you ask wrongly we've got to learn to pray can i just say it this way every one of us are going to pray that's not a question it's just who how and what because every one of us are going to pray wrong Unless God teaches us from his word right. That's why Jesus taught us how to pray. When you pray, pray this way. That's why he is teaching us to pray. He, that we, are, we, pr- we want to pray. I have never yet done a series of sermons that somebody came up to me as a Christian and said, you know, Pastor, I wish you'd get through this series. I am fully satisfied with my prayer. I've never yet met a believer satisfied with their prayer life. They want to pray, and they want to pray prevailingly and fervently. So help me. And that's what the Lord is doing for us here. Let me give you number three. Jesus teaches us in this prayer to pray simply with priorities, simply and prioritize. Now, I didn't say prayer is easy. Satan, I'm, I'm going to promise every one of you, Satan every single day is going to give you a reason not to pray with fervent prayer to Jesus for the very things that we're going to be praying about. He's going to give you every He does not want you to pray. He does not want you to pray rightly, and he doesn't want you to pray. But here's what I want you to know. Jesus not only calls you to pray, Jesus tells you to pray very simply. When you pray, pray this way. Look how simple this prayer is. And it's prioritized. Did you see the vertical before the horizontal? Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then we go to the horizontal. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespass. See the us's? See the us's? Give us this day, not the me, us, I'm sensible of other people. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So you see that there is the vertical and then the horizontal. It's very much like the law of God. The law of God, what are the first commandments? How to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. Then comes the horizontal. How do you love your neighbor as yourself who is made in the image of God? Same thing with the prayer life. You get the vertical and then you move to the horizontal. So you can't do the horizontal without the vertical. Now, you can do the vertical and not move to the horizontal. But you can't do the horizontal without doing the vertical first. That's the priority. And even within that are priorities. Worse. 
worship. Hallowed be thy name. Then effectiveness, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then we're down to simple things. God, give me every day the nourishment I need, physically and spiritually. It's very hard for us. I know your refrigerator's full. But, you know, one good storm tonight and it won't be full tomorrow. Do we learn to thank God and call upon him for our daily nourishment? And what about spiritually? Have you all ever prayed? I'm not, this is not accusatory. This is just rhetorical. Have you ever prayed for the sermon that's coming the next Sunday that it'll be faithful and effective for Christ because you want your soul nourished on that day? Do you pray for that person who is discipling you that they'll be effective in their discipleship and mentoring of you? Do you pray for your church that it'll be on mission, on message, and in ministry? And not just assume, yeah, they'll do it. Because Satan's trying to get them not to do it. And to do anything and everything else. God, give me my daily nourishment. And forgive me of my sins. And God, you've so freely forgiven me. Here's the evidence of my forgiveness. I freely forgive others. And then God, the future, I don't want to be led into temptation to sin. I want to be led into the path of righteousness for Christ. And then let me end it the way I started it. Because that's where you move to praise. You start with praise and you end with praise. Let me give you something else. Prayer, the prayer life is foundationally personal and private, but ultimately it's corporate and public. In this text, Jesus is not condemning public prayer. What he is condemning are people that did their private prayers and their private fasting publicly to be seen by others. That's what he's condemning. Jesus prayed publicly. There's nothing wrong with public prayer. What's wrong is when you do your private prayers publicly because your reward is, I want people to, call, I want people to know I'm praying. That's what he's condemning. But there's something else here. Would you all hang with me on this? I promise one little insight on word. In the ministry of the word, in the overall work of the ministry, word and prayer in your life, in the ministry of the word, it starts public with preaching and then works privately and personally. That's the way it works. Remember the Berean Christians? were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians because they, one, heard the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if these things are so. Public preaching, private examination, and Bible study. But prayer goes the opposite. Prayer starts personally. That's what I'm praying for, for you and me. Personal prayer, marital prayer. Family prayer, small group prayer, our ministry prayer, our congregational community, our corporate prayer. It's, it, it doesn't, the, the overall flow is from the personal and the private to the public. And the word is from the public to the private. Can I give you just one more thing? I, I believe this, and so I'm going to share it with you. I don't believe it's strong enough to tell you you're sinning if you don't do it, though. I believe whether it's personal or public, I believe when, it, when you do your personal prayer life, it ought to be out loud. 
I believe we're even personally is verbal out loud. Now, first of all, I'll speak practically. Maybe you're not like me. My prayer when I pray personally, silently, my focus lasts somewhere between 17 and 19 seconds. And I am thinking about, okay, what did Cindy tell me that I didn't get done? Or what did I not get? What what did I? I I just can't stay focused. But if I'm doing it out loud, I know some of you have seen it because you have ridden by on Highway 280 when my windows are up. You thought I was singing, praise the Lord. I was not. I was actually praying out loud. I think that, I mean, even, let me, did Jesus have a personal prayer life? Answer. Okay. I'm going to give you all one more chance on that. Did Jesus have a personal prayer life? Absolutely. I think he prayed out loud. And here's why. Whenever I read about his personal prayer life, the disciples nearby tell us what he prayed. Now, I know the Holy Spirit could have revealed it supernaturally. I just think they heard him. Go to the garden. Jesus takes his disciples, then he takes Peter, James, and John, then he goes over for personal prayer time. They tell us what he prayed. And what happened? That he's sweating blood in his capillary. That's, and they tell us that. They, 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 I think they heard him. So I think praying out loud is what I would at least recommend strongly. Not mandate, but at least strongly. Then, uh, number five, praise and petitions go together. You start with praise, you end with praise. How does it start? Hallowed be thy name. How does it end? Thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. In between, petitions. Six of them. Six petitions, all built up. The three vertical, the three horizontal, all built upon the others. So it's praise and petition. Number six. Prayers are informal and formal. Prayers are spontaneous. And prayers can also be written out. I highly recommend to you a couple of books. Can I recommend them? On fasting, I recommend John Piper's book, Hunger for God, and Donald Whitney's book on the disciplines of grace and fasting. In prayer, I highly recommend to you Richard Pratt's book, Pray With Your Eyes Open. And I also recommend to you a great prayer book. I use it all the time. It's in your, it's in your, usually a prayer from it is in your worship folder almost every week. The Valley of Vision. I highly commend it to you. The prayers of the Puritans. That they can be used and owned in the life of a believer. And then number seven, prayer then led to fasting. The handmaiden of prayer is fasting. The handmaiden of prayer. Now listen carefully. You can pray and not fast. There are many accounts in the Bible of people praying and not fasting. But I find no accounts of people fasting without praying. Whenever people pray, you've got the word on one side and sometimes it's joined to fasting. Why do we fast? Fasting is doing two things. Christian fasting. We don't have to fast. In the Old Testament, you see all this fasting going on. Then comes Jesus. You don't find fasting in the Gospels except the disciples of John the Baptist. In fact, they said, how come your disciples aren't fasting? And Jesus said, because I'm here. 
It's not time to fast. But when the bridegroom leaves, then they will pray and fast. That's where we are now. But prayer and fasting has two elements to it. It is lament over the consequences of sin with the hope of the gospel. Please get all of that. It is not lament hopeless. It is lament over the consequences of sin with the hope of the gospel of grace that is greater than our sin. And then secondly, you find prayer and fasting when they consecrated people with anticipation of God's blessing. You remember Paul and Barnabas were set apart for the first missionary journey with prayer and fasting. And then the second missionary journey. And then when they appointed elders in Acts 14.26, it says they set apart the elders with prayer and fasting. Because what prayer and fasting is saying is not only lament, but also anticipation of what God can do and will do and yet do for his glory. And fasting is like prayer. (laughs) Can I just please let me just do this too. Um, Have you noticed all the corrections on the wrong things in prayer? Have you noticed all the corrections were corrected by getting the doctrine of God right? You're heaping up all these phrases thinking you'll be heard because of your superstitious use of phrases. God knows what you need. Folks, can I, can I relieve you of a burden? God is not up there waiting for you in prayer to give him some information he does not yet have. Who has become his counselor? Who has become his teacher? This isn't, God, there's all kinds of things. The church is biblically illiterate in America. The church is spiritually impotent. God, look at everything that's going on here. God, this, this, this. God's not up there saying, oh my goodness, I didn't see that. Thank you. No, he knows before you know. But oh, he loves for you to come to him. You did as a parent, don't you? Remember when you were a child? Daddy, did you know two plus two equals four? Yeah. But boy, that was a great moment, wasn't it? That was a great moment. His children coming and saying, we hate sin. We love you. Would you come be with us that we can walk and bear witness of your heart to this world? Would you come and do that? And you go to him with simplicity, yet priorities. You go to him from your heart, yet led by your word and led by your spirit. And the same thing. Now, some of you may say, Pastor, what about fasting? Well, it may be 12 hours, one day a week. It may be one day. It may be three days. It may be a meal. It may be something. Some people say to me, well, Pastor, what about my medical? I agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones. Fasting doesn't have to be food. It can be something else that uh, God has given you that you enjoy. And you're not. Listen, it's not God. I'm giving this up. So will you love me? No, no, no. Food and drink are not evil. Eating and drinking are not evil. Now, you can eat and drink sinfully. But there, that's, that's a gift from God. You, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. What you're telling God is this. You're telling God, you, the bread of life, are more important to me than any bread of this world. <clears throat> My soul hungers for you. And when I feel that physical hunger, I'm going to feed my soul. That's what I'm going to do. Maybe a 12-hour, maybe a 24-hour. 
may be a particular item. Martin Lloyd-Jones is right. <coughs> it may be something, it may be something else. I don't know what it might be, but I know one thing. Don't go advertise. We don't need to let people know. It's between you and the Lord. Just bring it to Him. Well, here's your takeaway and I'll close in prayer. Thanks for your patience. <coughs> Hopefully this will at least get us started. I remember at the, all of the distortions and what was happening in this country in the 18th century. And Jonathan Edwards and Gilbert Tennant gave this a call to united, extraordinary prayer, a humble attempt. And out of the great awakening and revival that came from 1735 to 1765, you got this nation, even with its imperfections. I am praying, and I'm certainly no Jonathan Edwards, but I am praying with the humility of our hearts, calling upon the Lord through the extraordinary blessing of prayer as ordinary people in an ordinary church with other ordinary Christians in other ordinary churches, God will yet do an extraordinary thing and yet send another gospel awakening to this nation. That's where our great need is. These are heart issues. And we need God's heart surgery on us. So here's my takeaway. Biblical prayer and fasting does not line God up with our hearts. But let me tell you what it does. But when we biblically pray and fast and call upon God from dependent and undistracted hearts, God lines us up, lines our hearts up with his heart so that the world will see and hear from us and through us. The heart of God, which is to save sinners through Christ our Lord. That's what I'm praying for. I invite you to join. I call you to fervent prayer in these next 70 days. I invite you to consider the biblical gift of fasting. But I ask you. Let's unite and seek the Lord from the closets of prayer into the throne room of God. He sits not only on the throne of glory. He sits on the throne of mercy. Pray with me. Father, thank you to be able to walk through these absolutely astounding moments from your teaching on prayer and asking that the Holy Spirit would come and lead us. God, your, the leadership here has called us, but we're asking you to lead us. Father, there are some here who need to begin with this prayer. Jesus, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. And I acknowledge I'm a sinner and I put my trust in Jesus alone for salvation this day. And oh, the glory of being in the forever family of God that now you can pray, our Father in heaven. If you would like to meet with me or someone to talk about this prayer, this, 
this prayer of salvation and commitment to Christ? Please just let us know. But you can do it right there, right now. And then, God, would you lead us who have been saved from the glorious throne of grace to the throne of mercy. What a sweet, sweet place. May we be there daily in this coming season. And will you, from the throne of glory, rend the heavens and come down with revival power and a gospel awakening. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.